Coming up, a special Father's Day edition of the Bill Simmons Podcast where we're going to honor our fathers, all the fathers out there, by talking about basketball for almost 100 minutes. Happy Father's Day. It's all next. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car, or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it, I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm, is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Make this summer the best one yet. Invest in a Simply Safe home security system. I have one. I love it. It's a great way to protect your home when you're not there. Um, you need one, especially during the summer. You know what burglars know? People go away during the summer. That's what happens. So when you're away, you want to make sure your place is protected. You want to make sure that you potentially have little camera things you can watch on your phone to see what, what's happening at your house, at your front door, inside. You deserve some peace of mind. Get it today with Simply Safe. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. A new rewatchables is coming at some point this week. Not sure when. It might be, it's either Monday night or Wednesday night, but we uh, are going to be doing a movie that is pretty untouchable. That will be my hint. So there you go. Coming up on this podcast, Rosillo and I are going to talk about all the belated subplots from the finals, a lot of Curry stuff, some Dynasty stuff, and then some NBA draft stuff. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, happy Father's Day out there. I'm here with Ryan Priscilla. We're taping this on a late Sunday morning Pacific time. I spent uh, game six of the NBA Finals with my dad, who I didn't mention this on the Thursday night pod, um, was playing words with friends at halftime. He was, he was basically convinced this is done. This is a wrap. He went into this dark place. It was pretty funny. Uh, three days to kind of rehash what happened talk yourself into whatever narrative makes you feel better about it. If you're a Celtics fan, if you're a Warriors fan, you're thinking another run here. Rosillo, you didn't do a podcast on Friday. What were your thoughts coming off of game six? Boston just became a little easy to defend. You know, the, the offense reminded me of the times we didn't like them offensively. Um, but, you know, I just think it's always weird when we talk about like flaws. We talk about like Belichick losing it. It's like, you know, losing it's going six and 10 or six and 11 now. Or Alabama, like, oh, it's not the same Alabama. Okay, they, they just went 11-2. and two. So when I think about Boston this season, I still think it's a massive positive. Um, it's a disappointing end because I don't know that Golden State, like you didn't go to it being like they're so far superior. Um, but, you know, some of the questions that you have, I think are all fair questions. But I think you have to look at the totality of what this season was. And I think one of the most remarkable turnarounds from an unproven group of younger players 
that just emotionally, I didn't know if they were built for this kind of thing. So like for me to point to all the flaws that I think they have offensively or some changes or all these things, like we get into that later on, but ultimately I still think it's just such a huge positive for them because this is still something I didn't think they were capable of. So to say like, oh, it's these guys and they suck and they're soft and it's this and so it's just, well, if that had been true, then they would have lost to Milwaukee in the second round, you know, or maybe, maybe the first round against the Nets goes seven games. So I still think it's a huge positive. I, you know, I picked Golden State, but I felt like it was sort of a coin toss and that's kind of where I'm at with it. I was stunned. The more I thought about the series, how the last three games, the Warriors just got better and better, which is kind of what you have to do in some of these series, right? The, the, what Wiggins was doing, what Clay was doing, um, how they were able to unleash the offense and the movement and stuff like that. And then most important, just their defense, how it went up a level. And I, I think, I think the Celtics fans, because that had been a recurring theme with the Celtics over and over again, when the offense would break down, slow down, the turnovers, all that stuff, probably not enough credit um, to how the the Warriors just kind of solved them. I felt it at game five. It was, I, you know, I was, I was trying to, I did a podcast that night trying to balance the skies falling thing versus like what I deep down knew was that it felt just felt like the Warriors knew they had figured it out. And that's what it felt like. Supremely it, it, confident. Yeah. It, it felt like they really figured it out. You know, and I, I think Draymond for having probably three terrible games in the finals. I know Steve Kerr said that that wasn't the case. I, I just thought what he did in game six, you know, he he understood kind of what game six was about trying to eliminate somebody yeah. more so than anyone on Boston did. So go ahead. I interrupted. I mean, is out? did six always feel hope? Because even when a team is down big, I always think if the team's decent, and I mean, we have even saw it in this series. You're like, oh, okay, this, this game's over. Like, they're not really over. I mean, it still felt like Boston had a chance here in the fourth. How did it feel in the building? They blew the 12-2 run, which happened in about two and a half minutes. And once once people realized the bench wasn't going to show up again, and Tatum, who I talked about on Thursday night, just had a weird demeanor and look on his face. He just like, whether he was um, psyched out or or just emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted, whatever it was, it just didn't seem like he had anything left. And you could see it not only in the games, but in the timeouts. He wasn't talking to anybody. And, you know, I was doing some minutes stuff. Some of the minutes stuff was out there on, on social the last couple of days, but he really did play a shitload of minutes for a 24-year-old guy. There's not a lot of precedent for the 24. And it's going to sound like I'm making excuses for Tatum. I'm not, because I think there's real stuff that he has to work on if he wants to become a great player. I don't think he's a great player yet because part of being great is being consistent. And he's not. But... You look like he played 27, 31 minutes in the regular season. He played 983 in the playoffs. Just go look on basketball reference on that stat head thing. 24 and under guys, most minutes in the playoffs. He's second all time. Tayshawn Prince is first and Tatum was second. He had a bigger, way bigger responsibility than Tayshawn did in 2004. Um, just going backwards, just even the last like seven, uh, 15, 16 years, LeBron in 2013, he was 28-77 in the regular season, 9-60 in the playoffs. So right around where Tatum was, a little bit higher. Rondo, 29-63, 9-75. Richard Lewis, he's in there. Paul Pierce and Dirk. Dirk in 2006, 30-89 in the regular season, 9-83 in the playoffs. I thought Tatum hit a wall. And that was part of it. Because the other part is the floaters, the finishing around the basket, and the pull-up. Like if you're just talking about if we were advising him, how do you get better? What's the next step for you? Part of it has to be the floaters and part of it has to be the finishing around the basket. I'm not even going to talk about the post-up stuff yet. That might be three years away. 
But his inability to to master that mid-range that the Warriors, I felt like, were giving him, that really killed them in this series. I thought the shots were there. What'd you think? Yeah, he looked weak. He looked weak physically. You know, if he was going to drive a line, you know, he was, I thought he was, it was kind of easy to push him off of his line. Um, the post stuff, you know, I don't know how many good post players there are anymore, but like I used to always laugh about the LeBron post touches with Miami. He would catch it seven feet out, not have any post moves. And people were like, oh, he's really improved his post game. You're like, no, he's just catching it in a different area. Yeah. And there's actually some value in that. You know, like at first I was kind of laughing going, he's not really doing much. LeBron doesn't have this polished post game. And again, most guys don't. And I don't think most offenses want to run through it, but there needs to be some counters. And basketball is very predictable. You always kind of regress back to what you're most comfortable with. And he's most comfortable with the kind of, you know, step back jumpers. And defenders are going to be so happy when you take those all the time. I thought Clay's defense cranked up. Wiggins, I thought, was physically stronger against him. And, you know, this starts turning into, because I just, at no point, even when it was immediately over and while I was watching the series, at no point did I go, like, if I were on in Boston, what would I do? I, w- I wouldn't just start shitting on a team that got the game six in the NBA finals that was completely unexpected in January. I don't, I don't think that's the accurate way to look at this thing. But clearly there's some offensive things where I go, okay, what, what exactly are there? Um, their main problems. And I thought they, I thought in this series and that fourth quarter stuff and the numbers would back it up that they started to regress to what they're most comfortable with, uh, most comfortable with, which is what basketball players do. And the Jalen part of it, the fact that he can score this many points in these games and not be able to dribble a basketball and throw some of the worst passes you'll ever see from a high usage guy. And then you factor in the Tatum turnovers too. I'd imagine when you're playing against wings that has some flaws with the ball control, like you get, you actually get geared up for it. Like as soon as Jalen, had the basketball and had to put it on the floor as sharks in the water. And I, I, I met, like my guess would be, and I think it's a, it's a valid guess as a defender, you're like, Oh shit, he's going to try to dribble. And then it's on because you've played him so many times in a row. I'm actually a little worried for Jalen in that now that everybody saw it on this stage, will people be more hyper to swipe down at him in every regular season game. But then when you start looking at the total score numbers, Bill, I'm like, this is insane. It's still crazy to me that he scored this many points when he has this major, major flaw. This isn't as exposed as much in regular season games. Drew was the one who unlocked that in round two. He was the first one that I really saw just try to, anytime they put the ball on the ground, he would just pounce. And I think teams, Miami followed it. Golden State did too. Tatum had some of the same issues. The weird thing with Tatum was Golden State was so comfortable with him driving to the basket. And I thought Draymond, who looked like they were going to have to have a real decision with him come forward because athletically he just didn't look the same. And then game five, game six, I thought he was awesome. And some of the stuff he was doing, like you could teach it in basketball camps of a two-on-one fast break, how comfortable he was with just whatever happens, I'm stopping this. You know, he's six six. They just used all the Celtics' flaws against them. I thought it was an incredible coaching job. And you're right. Like, the Celtics, if we said in January they're going to get to game six of the finals and and lose, we would have taken that. I think they're really young. I don't think Tatum is going to be anywhere near the guy he's going to end up being. And if you're just thinking big picture, I wanted to play a little GM for a day later with the Celtics. But big picture, the question for me is, can, can you win a title with that nucleus with the ball handling and turnover stuff that I just don't think will go away with those four guys. Um, Because Smart was always shoehorned in as a point guard. The defense 
made it worth it to play him there. But there were so many moments in these games when, you know, even game seven, Miami, as that was falling apart and they were just either taking terrible shots or throwing the ball away. Do you need somebody who's a little more comfortable with the ball in those situations is going to be the big question for them this summer along with, can we find a wing so that in game five, as the series is slipping away, we don't have to play Brown and Tatum the entire second half because we don't trust anyone else on our roster. Those would be the two things I'm thinking about if I'm the Celtics. Yeah, both valid points. You know, I haven't always been the biggest Marcus Smart fan. That's not breaking news to everybody here, but I was really impressed with what he did the second half of the season, kind of figuring it out, accepting it all. But, you know, if your DNA, you know, again, we don't really have traditional point guards anymore. It's almost bad if you're a traditional point guard and you can't score. And his overall shooting numbers from three weren't bad, even though, I mean, look, most everybody that's taken 10 plus shots a night is going to have some dreadful shooting performance, if not two of them in a six or seven game series. It's just kind of the way it works out. I did wonder, you know, if Derek White, after what was kind of a fluky game one, where you go, is there enough playmaking with him that it, that it works? As his minutes got kind of dreadful there at the end. And he even was the I biggest disappointment. Yeah. He, he yeah. fell off a cliff those last, really starting game three, because he got benched in the second half of game three. And, you know, that was really what we're talking about. They thought he was going to be that guy, that kind of, that third guard insurance, but somebody who could handle the ball. And he just lost his confidence. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if it's an, I don't know if it's an upgrade of smart because I thought smart really figured some stuff out after I think, you know, I, I, it's great to have confidence. I would, I would look at smart as somebody who maybe in the past had so much confidence that kind of messed up the hierarchy of this team mm. uh, at times and whatever he thought of himself or whatever he accepted, I think was a, another big part of their improvement. But it's nice when you have somebody who's like dissecting a little bit more and that's not what they were doing offensively. Like they weren't going after better matchups. They had a couple times where like smart got the switch from Tatum on to Steph and then smart went and I'm like, wait, you just ran the action. You get the switch. You got the switch you wanted and then you didn't do anything with it. That happened a few times. There was some stuff I would say at the end of game six. I just thought overall, I don't know if they were mentally spent or not, but like Draymond's a perfect example. Draymond's help defense instincts are insane, all right? He knows exactly who he has. There was even a play, too, where I think Poole was getting posted up on the left block. Draymond knew, okay, fine, you want to do that? Like, I'm coming to bring help, but Gary Payton better be ready behind me to rotate. Maybe it was the Rob Williams or something, and Rob got a dunk. Smart made a great pass. Um I think it was smart posting pool now that I'm thinking about it. Anyway, none of this is relevant, but Draymond knew, and then it looked like it was Draymond's mistake, but Draymond, as he was helping, was also pointing out the help rule behind him, and Mm. Peyton fucked it up. Whereas on the other end, when they ran the Steph into Horford switch, which I can't believe they let, not the switch, the switches will happen, but that nobody ever was like, hey, so then Grant Williams stays glued to, to Kevon Looney, to Kevon Looney, like on the baseline, Looney didn't even have a good angle and he was far enough away that you could have helped off of him. And then it's like, no, we're just going to let Horford get torched by Steph again here. So it felt like the emotions, the the mental fatigue, the physical uh, physical fatigue, it felt like it was just adding up all there at the end, which is just part of the learning process for a team that I still think with Boston, when we compare them to other conference finals teams, that you're like, wait, like a perfect example of Atlanta making the East Conference Finals. Like you already sort of forget that. You're like, yeah. oh shit, that's right. Atlanta made the Eastern Conference Finals. Is that really who they are? Um, I think Portland's got one of those as well. I still think Boston's better positioned to feel like they have a group here that gives them a chance. Um, but there's also times too when I think about Middleton where the Bucs might have back-to-back titles if he didn't get hurt. 
that's why I've landed mentally. I think I think with Middleton, the Bucks were probably a little bit better. And it does feel like the Celtics were a year ahead of schedule. A little 96 Pats-esque with this. Where it's like, oh, a year early. Okay, we made it. They have a 17.1. We'll just do this now. They did a 17.1 million exception for Fournier. And that sounds a lot easier to use than you think. Because if you go through, I, I have eight guys that would make sense because I think if, if you're them, you have to get another wing. You have to be able to play three wings. You need insurance for Tatum and Brown. You can't be in a situation where they're playing 40 plus minutes a game in the playoffs. So Duncan Robinson, 16.9. Norm Powell, 16.8. Marcus Morris, 16.4. Malik Beasley's 15.5. Kevin Herter, 14.5. Caldwell Pope's 14. McDermott's 13.7. And Kuzma's 13. And I think they're going to aggressively spend because one of the things with the Warriors is the Warriors are the most aggressive spenders of any really good uh, multi-title champion that we've had. Like, they don't give a shit. And they'll, they'll spend, they spent $300 million last year. It's going to cost more this year if they want to keep Peyton and Looney. And they don't care because they have the money and they make a ton of money with the Chase Center and they're going to spend it. By the way, no one should care. All right. If you own one of these teams, none of you should care because you're about to what double your TV rights at worst and potentially triple them. So yeah, this is the best case scenario. There, this is the opposite of like the Sarver experience, right? The Warriors, they're so competitive up and down through that organization. They're just like we have a chance to win titles. We don't care what it costs. Like even last year, they Ubre probably cost them what eighty million bucks just having them on the roster. They could have gotten rid of them. So if you're the Celtics, you could try to maybe the Clippers if they have. Paul George and Kawhi back. Maybe they don't need Norm Powell and Marcus Morris. I don't know if the Celtics can bring Marcus Morris back. Well, I don't know good. if he was the most popular. I, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if the Brown, the Jalen Brown, Marcus Morris stuff was awesome. But I mean, when you're talking about owners that don't care, I don't think Ballmer cares about Norman Powell. So that's why whenever I see yeah. these trade exceptions and we went through it and I asked Bobby Marks about it, I go, what have you done anything? He sent me all of this work on historically going through like two decades of trade exceptions. That very, and, very rarely it gets used. It's like less than 25%. But where it could get used, if the Celtics called the Hawks and they wanted to flip Grant Williams for Kevin Herter. This is yeah. an example, right? Where you could trade Grant Williams to the Hawks and take back Herter, who makes, you know, 12 million bucks more than Grant does, but you could fit Herter in the exception. It's stuff like that, that where the exception can come into play. And the Celtics could look at it as, you know, do... Is it would it be easier to fill like a twenty to twenty five minute a game off the bench person with size, maybe a little more size than Grant? Because Grant was really badly exposed those last two rounds, you know. And I would I think the I would Miami pay, series in Golden State was was bad. I would pay money to see Grant Williams and Trey Young play together. <laughs> Grant was tough in person. Uh, we've talked about it before, but especially in Game Six when he was terrible, but was also trying to be the leader during the timeouts. It's like you got to play like. You got to be at least a C plus to start yelling at Tatum and Brown about what they should be doing. Like may maybe get one rebound, maybe make a three. I think but, when you see those times where Eme interacts with him differently than everybody else, I think that tells you a lot. Yeah. But Eme's so, like, dude, I don't want to hear it right now. And it's in the middle of the game. So the question for them is, is it, it's a two piece move, right? If you flip Grant into somebody that could fit in that exception, or you just try to get somebody with that exception and, and just hope a team's either trying to dump salary or use that money for something different or you keep the team you have and you just go at the mid-level that I mean there's a lot of free agents this year they ranging from like 
you know, the Dragic types. TJ Warren's a free agent. Um, Gary Payton's going to be out there. You have Ingles uh, coming off an injury, people like that. You have Jingle Connaughton. Juice. You have Kyle Anderson and Bruce Brown and uh, Tyus Jones and people like that. So there's a lot of like mid-level guys and Boston's going to be an attractive destination. What would be your move? What would you do? Would you keep the nucleus or would you try to get uh, frisky? Oh, I definitely try to get frisky because, you know, I think you need to come back. I, you know, I mean, I know it sounds simple. Just say, hey, be better, be better next year. But I don't know what, I don't want to hear about expenses. I don't want to hear about costs. None of these franchises are worth less. These guys have all killed it as far as the appreciation and growth of the value of these franchises. And there's a big thing coming here too. And I don't know how that's going to play out which I know we'll talk about probably with the Golden State stuff later on. But uh, yeah, I'd look at this group going, we're, we are still like, I don't think this is, and again, when I say it this way, I'm not, I'm not saying it. I always hate whenever I say we, because I don't mean it that way. I mean, if you're running the team, but this is, this is a really good group to keep building on. And I would hope ownership, and they have a really good track record. Like when they're close owners, this ownership's not afraid. So I, sometimes okay. I'll, I'll listen to some of the local criticism of the owners going like, are you guys not paying attention? Like they may not decide to pay the tax for an eight seed. <laughs> okay. But yeah. when it's, when it's close, I don't really think these guys screw around. So yeah, I, I, I'd love to see Rob Williams healthy for a full season. I don't know if that exists. I don't know what Horford's going to look like next year because I don't think you want to mess with that. I think I'd rather just pay him and have the option because he was so good and he's so important in so many other things that he does. Um, you know, I just think they need some other kind of wing outlet that also defends. And I think they thought they had that twice over and that didn't really work out. And that's why they went in the direction of White because White provided them a little bit more playmaking, but it didn't work out. And look, they lost to one of the best organizations we've seen in the history of this game. So there you go. And the Neesmith thing not working out really hurt them. And I, I'm not giving up on him yet, but he would have, that would have been a really big monkey wrench for them in that series if he could have played 15, 60 minutes a game. It's, it's hard. Right. It's hard to be any kind of shooter when you just don't play. You yeah, know? I agree. So there you go. John Wall buyout. <laughs> Bradley Beal super trade. Mike Conley sitting there. Ricky Rubio coming off an injury as a free agent. Brogdon seems to be available. They have the mid-level at 6.3. There is uh Brogdon Joe just Ingles. doesn't play enough. I We all like Brogdon. He's yeah. really good. He just doesn't play enough. Joe Ingles, Tyus Jones, Pat Connaughton, Kyle Anderson, Nick Batum, TJ Warren. Those are just some names I wrote down. I don't know how they're going to play it, but I think they're going to be aggressive. And I think they feel like they have a chance to succeed for the next four or five years. But the key would be Tatum. What can he add? He will be better three years from now than he is now. What will he add? What is that journey going to look like? And I can't wait to find out. All right, we're going to take a break and then it's time. Steph Curry. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Summer is all about fun vacations, but I know that being away from home can be stressful. So many things can happen. That's why I like to recommend Simply Safe, a award winning security that can help give you peace of mind when you're away. The only thing you should worry about while you're on vacation is having too much fun. Having my home, it's great. Couldn't work better. I think Simply Safe is the best because it comes with a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras, sensors to detect break ins, fires, floods, and more. It's backed by 24 7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. It's given me, my family, many others real peace of mind. I'm waiting to have it too. Try it out. 
a 60-day money-back guarantee. No contracts right now. Get 20% off any Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. That is Simply Safe with two S, simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This episode is brought to you by Burger King, which has the greatest commercial song I think I've ever heard. The ultimate hunger hack has arrived, my friends. BK's Royal Crispy Wraps. Choose from four bold flavors, classic, spicy, honey mustard, and the new, drumroll please, fiery buffalo. Oh yeah, I'm getting that one. They're only, only just $2.99 each because at BK, have it your way, you roll. Try Royal Crispy Wraps at Burger King, $2.99 each. Price and participation vary, U.S. only. All right, before we talk about Steph, forgot to mention, Tatum played almost 500 more minutes than anyone else in the NBA this season, which I thought, that's not nothing. And those were hard minutes for nine, 10 straight weeks. So if you're going to make the case like Tatum just hit a wild, there's some pretty good minutes. By left. the way, when you, just one last thing on it, and I'll, I'll just tee it up and get out of the way. But when you pointed out the other 24-year-old seasons of the other guys we spent a lot of time talking about, and you know maybe there is some kind of, like I, I look at Tatum and go, okay, whatever I thought he was capable of, the game six against Milwaukee Bucks, like this starts to change the direction you think it's, all right, we also realize there's, a, there's still a fairly significant gap, but I thought your 24-year-old season comp thing was really important, but it also is because like Tatum's got 18, he's got 20, and now he's got 22, and it's felt like he's been around for a while, but I also think it was yeah. kind of fair to look at who were who the other like premier number one options at 24 that did this and he's not Luca like he's just not okay cool like you win like I don't think any of us would ever say this guy's better than Luca yeah Dwayne Wade is probably the best case scenario 24 year old season in 2006 when he took Miami to the title but other than that most of the people you look at who were great at age 24 weren't the player that they would eventually come become two to three years later all right Steph Curry bittersweet for me uh I know you enjoyed <laughs> you enjoyed the step victory lap. I'll just throw some questions at you and we'll just go in order because I said to House on Thursday night, the first thing to me is Kobe versus Curry for number nine all time for me is now in play. I still think Kobe has him on the, on the totality of all the stuff he did during his career. Like if you actually really look at, uh, at some of the Kobe stuff, it's pretty, the the All-NBA stuff and things like that is pretty crazy with him. Kobe, you know, he's finals MVP, obviously no nine. He was the first or second best player in five champs. He made two other finals. He was top five MVP vote 11 times. And he was first team All-NBA 11 times. Second team twice. Third team twice. Curry won the back-to-back MVPs best or second best player and four champs and two runners up four times, four times first team on base, three times second team, one time third team. So I still have Kobe at nine. I looked at it. I, I tried to factor in the whole piece about Curry, how he changed the way basketball was played, how he succeeded Tim Duncan as the greatest teammate you could possibly have all the great shooting stuff with him. The, the 25 and 0 winning streak, the 73 wins, the three years in a row when they were like 207 and 39 from 15 to 17. Like the peak of Steph's teams, I think, were better than really any Kobe Lakers peak 
other than maybe that stretch in the second half of the 2001 season. But I still have Kobe ahead of him. So I'll start there. What do you have? I have him ahead of Kobe. I have him behind Magic, which I think we should also touch on at some point too because Andre Iguodala going, okay, now he's the best point guard of all time. Magic, Magic's resume here is getting completely overlooked. Yeah, I'm not ready to go near that. So I'm not, it's not even a debate yet for me on the Steph Magic one. Steph Kobe, I think, is a real debate. Now, this is very clear bias. Uh, if you're a Kobe guy, you're just not hearing it, right? You're you're talking the defensive gap. It's different. It's all those things. Uh, I'm admitting my bias as being more pro Steph because I think Steph, and it depends on really what you want to factor in with the top 10 evaluation of all time players because it starts to get like, you start having to make little arguments against the other guy who's also phenomenal, right? Which isn't always fun to do. So do you factor in what somebody means for a franchise, how much better he makes every other player? Um, I don't know. I don't know if you do or not. Like, if, again, if I'm a Kobe stan, I'm saying defense, the gap, I don't want to hear it. If I'm a Steph guy, I'm saying never asked for a trade. <laughs> the easiest superstar to play with in his generation, maybe beyond. Uh, he or Duncan, I think, you know, obviously Duncan is in the conversation there too. The stats, like Steph has better stats. He just does. He, he, his playoff averages, granted, he's played like almost 90 less games than Kobe had by the time he had retired, but a higher scoring average, more rebounds a game, more assists a game. They shot it close, but Steph still has the edge in the course from three. You look at some of the net rating stuff, even when Kevin Durant was his teammate, um, you know, Steph had the number one playoff net rating in 17 and 18 and 15 it was number two behind Draymond which is also because of Steph he was eighth this year in this playoff run um you know going back to 15, uh, 15 16 it obviously dipped it wasn't as good Toronto wasn't as good but that's four times we're talking about him essentially being like the number one guy that you would want out there and there's something as simple as to say hey how come every time this guy's out there his team wins all these games so if you want to take away what you are as the face of the franchise, meaning the buy-in part of it, then that's advantage Kobe because Steph doesn't have that summer of of anger where Kobe was like, I'm out. I don't know that Kobe made his teammates better. And I think when shit got tough. Kobe was Kobe, a pretty terrible teammate for a long right. time there. There's a lot of documentation. All you, look, all you have to do is read. Read any last, book. Read any book. You read, read any the last Phil Jackson Pearlman. book. Read the Perlman book. There's There's a lot of stuff out there. The last Perlman book is almost every single teammate and coaching staff at, at some point being incredibly frustrated with Kobe here. And so I think the difference with the two of them, though, is that. And by the way, I'm with you for the bias side of me. I would take Curry every time. He's just I just think he you have an easier chance to win with him. I think he fits in with more people, better ways. You don't have to tailor things around him. He's, he's never going to shut player. down on you. No. By the way, like Kobe's got some weird playoff stuff on his resume where you're like, what the hell happened there? Like I went through it. There's a handful of them there. Now, if Steph keeps playing, you know, Steph keeps playing here. And I don't even want to count all the Kobe losses at the end. He missed a full season. The team stunk. You know, he had a well, weird. Is it, is it fair to say Kobe better career so far? But I think Steph. Yes. Steph's yeah. eight to nine years, I think, is better than any Kobe eight to nine years. Yeah, but if you're the, going total numbers, right? I mean, first of all, you're right. Because when I say, hey, the numbers are better, like I was surprised across the board, Steph was basically better in every average for playoff career stuff, but it probably will dip down as Steph ages. And so maybe Kobe ends up surpassing him when it's all said and done. But who would I want to be the face of my franchise? Who would I be psyched about having other guys play with? It's Steph. But as of now, if you're telling me you still think Kobe's 
full resume is still ahead of Steph's, I'm not going to scream and yell about it. The Steph stuff, you know, his career, I mean, he's at 20,000 points already. We did the Book of Basketball pod about him, and some of the numbers have already shifted in ways we predicted, right? He's got, he's the only guy over 3,000 threes regular season. For his career, is 47, 43, 91. His win shares per 48 is 0. .203, 62.4% true shooting. It seems like he's going to get at least 25K points in 4,000 threes if he's healthy. And then the playoff numbers are fantastic. I mean, he's played 134 games at this point, six finals. He's 27, 5, and 6 in the playoffs. He's 45, 40, 89 percentage. He's made 4.2 threes a game. He's made 561 threes, most ever. 152 threes in the finals, most ever. All the shooting stuff with him and the efficiency stuff, it's, it's hard to imagine anybody topping it. And I think that's going to be one of the things. He just needs a couple more years. I think he's going to pass Kobe for me probably in the next two years. And then the Magic thing will be the more interesting one because I just think Magic's Mount Rushmore, I think, for the NBA has to have five guys. And he's on it. He just is. My pantheon right now, MJ, LeBron, Russell, Kareem, Magic. If I had my Mount Rushmore starting five, Bird, Duncan, Chamberlain, Kobe, and Steph's 10. And then Durant, West, Robertson, Olajuwon, Shaq, and Moses. And I probably have Durant too high. That's my 16. I think those are the 16 best players ever. Yeah, Steph has the highest uh, true shooting percentage in, in a finals ever by a guard with 100 or more attempts, and that's against the supposed defensive player of the year and the number one defense in the regular season, all right? He's number two in finals average, which is another weird thing with Steph, because right up until this year, which is the part that I enjoyed for Steph, you're like, wait, so now he has the second highest scoring average behind Michael Jordan in finals history? Because Steph is held to this impossible standard. He, missed, he, has, he has a bad night shooting, which he usually has like one game in a series where you're like, what the hell happened tonight? Game three, 2018, he was like three for 16. And this is kind of back to like the LeBron, peak LeBron, Steph stuff. Because here's Steph like doing stuff we've never seen before. He's winning back-to-back -back MVPs and you're going, wait, is he actually the single best player? Well, he's having the best seasons. But that's why I think LeBron took it so personal and why 16 is always going to mean so much to him. And there was the block in that series where it was kind of like, hey, fuck this. Like, you actually think this guy's better than me? Like, I yeah. get what he's doing. And that's where the separation between LeBron and Steph, like, I'm just not having it. Like, LeBron needed to do something physically. He's just capable of stuff that Steph isn't capable of, especially even back then, where I don't think Steph is nearly the driver then that he is now, uh, despite, you know, the handle seeming just as, as tight. So you've got all these new numbers. Stat Muse on Twitter. I thought Aisha was running the site there for like a day because it was just <laughs> every single thing. You're like, wait, Steph is what? And where does he rank in the finals? He's got the highest three-point percentage in a finals series ever with 50 or more three-point attempts. That's with an 0 for 9 game five in there, and he still has the record. So it just was this barrage of stuff historically where I think any Steph fan, even if you're from the Northeast or Mass, you're going, all right, you know, it was a very weird, it was like watching Chris Long play for the Eagles against the Pats for me. I mm. had a hard time with it, but the magic stuff is where I will stop listening to you. And I get Iguodala is doing it for his teammate, but Magic Johnson's resume doesn't get enough credit because of the Jordan part of it. Magic, for 12 straight years, okay, before yeah. he retired for four years because the HIV test, and he came back and played at 36 and 32 games. Magic's Lakers team averaged 15.93 wins per season over 12 years. And in those 12 years, they made it to nine finals with a couple MVPs in there on top of everything else. This is where the Jordan 6-0 and shit can get really annoying. 
if Magic were six and three in finals, would we say it's still worse than Jordan's? Like, granted, my MJ's got six, Magic's got the five, but for whatever reason, because the stats maybe build just don't back up the Magic decade. No, there well are. As- we do have stats. We have two okay. stats. Okay, go for it. They made the finals at nine to twelve years. They won five, but his winning percentage—it's the highest ever of anyone. He was. He his winning percentage. He finished at at point seventy seven twenty eight. He won seventy two point eight percent of his games. The next it feels one like was, there's a reason, right? <laughs> the next one was Russell at uh, I'm sorry, Bird at seventy one point five, Russell at seventy point seven, and Duncan at seventy point five. Those are the only guys ever who won seventy percent of their games. And this is why I value Duncan so much. If Duncan was on your team, you won fifty games. I think we can safely say if you have Steph with good teammates, you're probably going to win 50 games because all the stuff he does. And I, I think, to me, the thing that was so important about the finals MVP for him wasn't that he won the finals MVP and we put that stupid argument to bed. It was how fucking great he was in the finals. That game four he played was one of the best games anyone's played in the finals in the last 20 years. And it was so important because the Celtics, not only did they blow it, but he he tilted the series and kind of broke them. It was the first okay, but, time they were like, we we don't have a guy as good as this guy. We're not going to win the series. All right, you're saying the bet, but it's. I mean, do you think it's better than Giannis in the clinching game, making every single one of his free throws? And no, I think points? Giannis. I think that Giannis game is there too. Okay. I think what are there like eight, nine, ten great finals games that we've had this century, and I this think is that's your one department. of them. Yeah, yeah. I don't I, know. I haven't I haven't done all the homework on that, but I. I I would have to put that game in there. I, I love that you love LeBron's game one and 18, right? Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> I think because I was there and I, just the physical force that that he was doing it with. But um, and going I'm not saying you're Rand, wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, listen, what he did was for the people that believed the whole time that he was just completely different and that some of this stuff was unfair. I just think the way his teammates played off him and played for him and that was a, a point Kerr really made that these guys wanted it for Steph so bad. There's only a couple guys ever that have had that kind of connection with their team. And I, I, you know, the other piece, just him staying there the whole time, you and I care about that. I think there's something to it, you know? Like, I think that title for him and that team probably means more than just switching teams and winning a title somewhere else. The same thing with Giannis the year before, you know, when it's the team that, drafted you and you tried to build something and they tried to build around you and you had some ups and downs and you had some tough losses and then you win. It just means more. I wonder if there's a lesson there with the Durant thing because there is the the way Kobe gets discounted. Like if you don't like Kobe, I don't do it to him because I don't think it's fair, but you go, well, Shaq was the guy in the first three and it's, it's not Kobe. And it's like, man, nobody does this by themselves. That's why I would, if we're doing any of the Jordan stuff, which I, you know, I don't really want to argue against him at all. Like his his resume of help is just not what some of these other teams are. And that's why I think it's always kind of funny where if you're pro LeBron, you'll argue, well, Durant just went there and helped Steph. Because, you know, again, I didn't even think there was a Steph LeBron argument to actually be had after this, even with the fourth ring, because I just watched them both. And as much as I love Steph, LeBron's a better basketball player. Like it's okay to say it out loud. Um, but when you have KD come to you, even when it's your thing and you don't really need him. Because the other thing that people make a mistake with is that if they hadn't grabbed KD, guess what? They would still have Barnes, who was the, the prequel to Wiggins. They would have figured out the center position with 
either flipping Bogut or adding some other piece. But you know, now when you have Draymond Clay and Steph making all that money with Durant, then it then it changes what you can do on the margins. So they would have done a good job. They would have figured it out. They still would have had a really good team despite blowing the three one lead, considering they're coming off a seventy three. They still season. win in seventeen, I think. Yeah, right. So I be- I agree with you. So they didn't really need Durant, but the Durant part of it diminishes it for Steph despite a lot of numbers showing you that even if Steph wasn't PKD, that Steph was still the engine that made this thing go and made Katie's life easier. Uh, it's you just, know what, it's just what happens. You know what it did, though? I still think that's the best team I've seen. I agree. And I think that's, I think that's what the KD thing did, and people like to shit on it now, but it's the best basketball team we're probably going to see in the modern shooting era. I mean, you could separate it by errors and if you're going to go more post-up physical error, you probably go 86 outs or 96 bulls, whatever. Um, I always thought the 0-1 Lakers were pretty magical. The last like half of that season, they were just like like when Shaq and Kobe were aligned like that, it was pretty special. But, I but do you think, think, let me ask you though, but do you think like the next, I don't know if we're going to have another team that wins 70 plus games and whatever has a No, because there's, there's too much talent now. Okay. But do you think there'll be somebody that goes, actually, I don't want to share. Like, I don't want to share the spotlight because I think Steph, up until this series, it was, yeah, he's got his one, but KD was there. I mean, we know how the arguments work for all of this. Yeah. Stuff. I think part of the problem with Steph is he probably didn't care enough about this stuff. Which you know? is also he was just wise. like, whoa, Kevin Durant wants to play with us? Awesome. You know, even like he was so amused those first two years with all the Durant stuff. I remember with the, when we did one of the podcasts and Durant did the blog boy rant that became a thing on the internet and we made the t-shirts like for fun. Curry reached out and was like, can I have a Bog Boy t-shirt? And he wore it. Like he just like really enjoyed how kind of out there Durant was. He's just who he is. You mentioned the LeBron thing. LeBron's better than Curry. There's an awesome argument though. This is my next Curry question. Was Curry the best player of the last 10 years? Because I think people would say LeBron was, but we have a full decade now of Curry. 2013, through 2022. LeBron, those 10 years, three and four in the finals. Curry was four and two in the finals. LeBron made seven first teams, one second team, and two third teams, one of which he should not have made. Curry made four first teams, three second teams, one third team. LeBron won one MVP. Curry won two. LeBron had seven top five finishes. Curry had four in the MVP. Curry had the 73-win Warriors thing which is its own mark that I think becomes first paragraph of whatever his legacy is. LeBron had the 27-game winning streak with Miami, which is still incredible and I actually think has become underrated. LeBron made six straight finals during that stretch. Curry had the 207-39 and record for three straight seasons. Um, LeBron had the 3-1 to finals comeback. Curry had um, just all kinds of records for three-point shooting. LeBron did three teams. Curry was the one team the whole time. LeBron started the player empowerment thing. Curry changed basketball the way it was played. LeBron was the GOAT durable guy. Curry was the GOAT shooter. The points are pretty similar. 18K for LeBron, 16.9 for Curry. Win shares, LeBron slightly better. Points more. Uh, playoffs, 29.9 and 8 for LeBron in the playoffs. Curry was 27.5 and 6. Best teammates, LeBron had AD, Wade, Bosch, Kyrie, and Love. Curry had KD for three years, Clay, Iggy, Draymond, and Wiggins. Writing all down, Rosillo, it was way closer than I expected. I just would have assumed it was LeBron, but I, I think 
I think it's probably LeBron by a hair, but it's really close. I was surprised. Yeah, this is a making the simple thing complicated, which happens probably too much because it's just cooler. And you're right. Like the resumes, you go, whoa. And then if you really want to hammer the finals thing, but I don't think that's what this is. The simple question is who's been the better player the last 10 years? And it's LeBron. But Curry's in there. I, I in didn't a way, think it was going to be a way, landslide. I wouldn't have expected. Yeah. Best 21st century players. LeBron, Curry, Duncan, Kobe. Would you have KD as your fifth? Best players of the 21st century. Our nominees are KD, Dirk, Wade. And you could take Giannis too, even though it's like less than a decade of him. Or Chris Paul you could go with if you wanted. In the five? So wait, are we doing starting do, five you, or the last yeah. 10 years? No, I'm I'm going century, 21st oh. century. So you could take nine years of Shaq too if you want. I think LeBron, Curry, Duncan, Kobe have to be the four, but the fifth spot is pretty fun. I have no problem with Durant. Like I thought, because we got extensive homework assignments, so I just want to make sure I made Bill proud on this one. I thought we were doing starting five of the last 10 years, which we can do both, obviously. We can do it. Let's do both. Right. Um, Kobe's in there. Duncan's in there. Like I would always kind of lean Duncan over Steph and Kobe at this point. But Me too. I don't know. Like what I wouldn't want to do with Duncan the same way we don't with Magic is compare it. Like, well, you know, he was kind of an older school and the games moved. Well, okay, but for whatever it was for 15 years, this guy was the guy you wanted. Yeah. And the extension of Duncan's career, which was as surprising in the moment as probably any of these superstars. Like there were times there in the late aughts where you thought, okay, well, how many more? Like the, the 13 and 14 runs from this team were not expected after they were finishing up. And 12. 12, they're up 2-0 in the finals and it just completely fell apart. But that that team was really good for three straight years. Yeah. And I don't know that any of us expected that maybe even at the end of 07. So Duncan might be my first pick out of all the guys just because, well, no, I can't say that. No, LeBron. Yeah, LeBron. Duncan's LeBron the second pick. Yeah. I think, it's, I think that's the five. If you went last 10 years, though, it's still Curry and LeBron. Okay, this will be interesting because I think there's a pretty solid four and then statistically there's supposed to be a fifth and I, I didn't put them on there, which is Giannis. Do you have Giannis? No, I do have Giannis. I mean, granted, it took him a little bit longer to get going. It was year four before he really stood out. Six straight All-Star games, two MVPs. Um, you know, Embiid, he's only played five full seasons. So he's been in the league eight, missed a year, missed a year, played 31 games. I wouldn't it's have crazy MVP. to think no, but I, you know, I wouldn't have him over Giannis. So I think it's Steph, it's LeBron, it's Durant, it's Giannis, and then I went Chris Paul over Harden. Harden is number one in win shares. He's number one in points, but the Rosillo shares model has him at 30, 31% officiating boost production. Our models it, are different over here. Uh, and Chris Paul had 32 and 17 in a playoff game once. I just, anytime we talk about history and Harden and whatever list, I just, it just starts for me with they quit on two teams. I just can't get past it. And I would penalize him for that. So who's I your would, starting five of the last 10? For me, Jokic would probably be on there. Over Giannis? No, I had Giannis and Jokic. Over KD? Who are you taking out then? Didn't you have, Le you had LeBron and Curry 
LeBron Curry, Durant, Giannis, Chris Paul. I think I would have Jokic over Chris Paul. But I'd right, have so to look be- at it. This is good. This is I'll, I'll look at this. I'll have a better answer for you next week. Let's take a quick break. Two more Curry questions for you. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is brought to you by Honey Stinger. This is a show about sports and culture opinions. But right now, I want to talk sports facts, the data, the stats. Honey Stinger, sports nutrition, trusted by more than 1,500 pro and college teams. That's right, 1,500. That's all 32 pro football teams. That's 39 pro basketball teams, 29 pro baseball teams, and more that prepare, perform, and recover with the delicious taste of Honey Stinger's energy waffles, chews, gels, and bars. Honey Stinger is the one team's trust. Use code Simmons for 20% off your first order at honeystinger.com. That is S-I-M-M-O-N-S for 20% off your first order at honeystinger.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I understand that some things you just want to keep private. Maybe it's something you don't want anyone to know, or maybe you think it's something minor, so why bother? But if you keep everything bottled up, if you let those emotions sit there and fester, it could be really, really bad for you. Sometimes it depends on what kind of family you're from. Like my dad's family is one of those. They bottle everything up, bottle everything up, and then they all just get mad at each other. Listen, talking things through is more helpful than you think. If you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend some therapy. Think about the things you can get out of therapy. First of all, a sounding board. You can learn better coping skills. You can learn how to set some boundaries. Maybe how to empower yourself a little better day to day. And if you want to give therapy a try, well, I have an answer. BetterHelp. A convenient and flexible way since it's entirely online right now. It's easy to get started too. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Bill Simmons today to get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Bill Simmons. All right, two more Curry things. One is that there's some other list of greatest under six foot six guys that he's now the best under six foot six guy we've ever had, I think. And it's a it's a shorter <laughs> list than you think. Cause that list I did before Good the Pantheon. Were you trying to do that? <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, it was a little dad joke on Father's Day. All the great guys are six foot six and up. Even magic. But then you go, it's like once you get, you know, once you get into like the 10 and down range, then you start getting, um, you know, Curry, um, Oscar, West, uh, Bob Cousy, Isaiah, Wade. But I think Curry is the best, not just the, uh, one of the best guards ever, but I think he's the best under, I guess you, I don't want to call him a little guy because he's taller than I am. He's 6'3". But if you're like sort of little guy, he's the best sort of little guy ever, I think is now his title. I think that's what uh, this last thing did. So I have that for you. And then I think I, I texted this to you is Minnesota passing on Curry twice in the same draft, which was a disaster when it happened. <laughs> is that now the biggest draft mistake of our lifetime? When you think they took a point guard two times in a row, Rubio was the right pick. I think Rubio was probably a higher ceiling higher upside pick at the time. And I, I thought my three favorite guys in the draft were Rubio and Curry, and I can't remember who the third guy was, but Rubio going ahead of Curry with the with the first one 
I was totally fine with. I think it's still defensible. But then they took Johnny Flynn over Curry. And I still think it's one of the crazy. It was in the moment one of the craziest picks in the history of the draft. And now I think it's the biggest mistake anyone's made unless you want to throw Bagley over Luca at me. Since we've known each other. So this century. Yeah. The Rubio thing, you have to understand how much everyone liked Rubio. Okay? It was, it was, shit, were people more excited about Rubio than Luca? Because it was still this unknown. We were reading about Rubio, I think, when he yeah. was in junior high. I was all in. I would have, but I would have, I would have emptied my stock, NBA stock account on Rubio. Okay. Watching him go against those 08 guys when he was 17, I was like, this guy's going to be transcendent. And he went into the worst situation possible and he got hurt. And, and he still just, ended up having a decent, I mean, look, he was yeah. contributing this year. Uh, the shooting, you know, was never what you wanted it to be. But defensively, I actually thought he ended up being a better player than the beginning of his career. We were like, wow, is this guy going to survive out there defensively? Also, uh, the, the league changed. You, he made more sense in the 2000s than he did five years later when shooting became so much more important than it was in 2008 and 2009. Like, it, it, like somebody like Rondo could dominate three straight playoff rounds without a jump shot. And so Rubio, all the stuff that he did just made more sense back then than I think it did in 2016. And it was fun as hell to watch. Like oh, you would see so some good. of these, he would have this stuff before the draft where he would drive and he knew where the trailer always was. And mm. it was just this blind behind the back thing. Or you know how Luca now will drive, and I still think he kicks it out at the rim too often, but he knows exactly where the, it's like the receiver quarterback thing we talked about in the past. But he'll go up and he'll flip it behind his head, just knowing if I have enough on this, it's going to end up in the corner. And that's where yeah. the guy's supposed to be anyway when I do these drives. Rubio was doing that shit as a teenager before I think anybody. So... To look back at the Rubio decision, it made sense at the time. Remember, Steph, he came back and played that next year after the tournament run. It seemed like they were trying to force him to play point guard. But I remember Amin El-Hassan saying, you know, when they thought they were trading for him with Phoenix, he's like, his teammates were so bad at catching his passes, they had a term for it. And they called it Lovedales. Like, you would watch him and then go, actually, that was a great read. So it was weird because the Steph thing felt like, wait, did Davidson just spend this entire year changing who they were as a team just to showcase this guy to make him a lottery pick? Like, this mm. is weird. Because we had seen so many college scorers that were great guards and great scorers, and you were like, is Steph just going to be another one of these guys because he's so undersized? And what you didn't realize is that, you know, this guy's just built a little, he's wired differently. So... The he, point the, the knock was he was too skinny, and even though he was a great shooter, it was tough to imagine him and being a huge impact guy. I did not believe that knock. I always thought he was special. So the uniqueness of this question, though, is who else would have two opportunities to pass on this guy? So you well, have also, to really... Also, and Rubio and Curry together would have made so much sense, even as it was happening. It was like, this should absolutely be what they do. I, uh... uh because you can't you can't just say like, hey man, Memphis took a sheem to beat that year. What a whiff. Okay, well, people make bad draft picks. You have to find something that's along the lines of uniqueness of epically fucking it up. And the one that I would come up with is Portland trading out of number three, where they could have taken Darren Williams or Chris Paul, and they did it to move back to six and get another first later on that was Joel Freeland, and then it was uh Linus, Linus Kleza, who ended up being Jarrett Jack. So, like, they ended up with Martel Webster when they could have had Chris Paul. And they yeah. traded out of the decision 
to take Chris Paul and then wanted a point guard. But they'd also taken Telfair the year before right, they were bad. all in. So that that's not just getting it wrong. That's doing something to make sure you get it wrong. And that's why you don't see like all these rumors these next couple of days, Bill. Oh, all these trades, all these trades, all these trades, all these trades. It's one thing to fuck up the pick. It's one thing to trade out and then end up screwing it up historically. And that's why I usually there aren't as many trades as everybody thinks there's going to be before the draft. Darko over Carmelo should be mentioned as well. Or Bosch. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, just it was just th- during the era when somebody could just have a good workout and could just vault over these dudes that we had all this game tape on. That was good. I think the Curry thing is an unbelievable mistake. And it's also a big what if for the Knicks fans because they were one pick away from him. You know, and you think, it w- I think they won three less game or three more games than the Warriors, but you just think him and Knicks, although they probably would have fucked it up. He probably would have left. Um, and then Kerr, you mentioned the Phoenix thing because I was friends with Kerr back then. They thought they had the Curry trade. And then when the Warriors realized they were going to get him, they basically backed out. But I think it was like Amari and B. Adrians, and they were flipping like seven for 14. So Kerr thought he was going to get him. And then he ends up belatedly getting him. And now Kerr, you know, is going to hitch his wagon to him for as as uh, as long as he possibly can. Um, and then the, the other, only other one was how high could Curry go? I think, I think there's a chance he could ke- catch Magic if they keep making the finals and winning titles. But we'll see. Magic, we feel the same about Magic. Like that, Please do not throw Magic's name around or Bird's name around casually. These were the two most important players for an entire generation. Had real success and their teams won all the time. And you can't hold anything against them just because the careers were shorter back then. That's the way it went. Yeah, and there's it, there's some parallel there too for LeBron and Steph. Like what happens if one of the other guys isn't around? You know, and I don't always love doing this. We do it with boxers all the time. But it's like, oh, if it weren't for Muhammad Ali, and you're like, okay, if it wasn't for maybe the greatest fighter we've seen in the history of the sport, yeah. you know, Joe Frazier, we'd be sitting here talking about him all the time. And it's just not the way life works. Who knows what goes on with with breeding and whatnot? So, um, well, one thing with the LeBron thing though is I do think he's probably at the end of the road unless he can for winning titles, unless either he gets traded this year or he can find a team to jump onto a year from now. I just don't see a scenario where, you know, he's, he's his 20th year this year. I don't see another scenario where he's like a relevant title guy. I mean, maybe Tom Brady with the Bucks always, I'm always have my guard down now because you just never know. But if you're telling me he's going to jump on an awesome team and play for like 3 million bucks or something just to try to win a title, would he do that? Would he I be okay he with that? Yeah, but they'd have to figure out a way to frame it. You know, that's always that's always the deal where it would be like, you know, it's they been would my say dream something. to play with Chris Paul, like right, that kind of right, shit. Right. Yeah. Or, well, I don't know if Chris Paul would be the guy that I would pick at this point of like guys getting a little bit older. But, oh, this is an important mentor thing. This is important for me to do this. It's like, no, you just want to figure out a way to add one more to this thing because you're chasing one guy in all of these arguments. And they would say, I think they would say, well, you know, Jordan came back because it was also part of him understanding the management role or whatever. But, you know, yeah, he just Jordan, didn't know what to do with his life. Yeah. And Jordan also picked the team that he was aligned with where you're like, OK, well, this team isn't going to win any games. But, you know, when you think about Magic and Bird and just going, imagine if one of those guys avoided the other. All right. How would we talk about Bird? Would would we always be talking about Magic ahead of Michael Jordan? Because I still think Magic on the individual arguments because the stats just look different than everybody else's. He doesn't get enough respect. Uh, it feels like that's the way the conversation's gone around Magic. But back to your winning percentage point and all that kind of stuff. That's why I just 
I don't know that you're going to find two bigger Steph fans, okay, on a podcast. I, I fucking love the guy. <laughs> you're probably right? not. Yeah. Right? Non-warrior non Steph fans. We're probably in the top five. Right. But when I heard the magic stuff and then it being brought up and then people were discussing it like it was a real thing, I just kind of like, go, oh, no, we've gone too far. We've gone. Remember that one game when we were doing the rewatches during the first couple months of the pandemic? We watched that one magic game and we were just like, oh my God, magic was unbelievable. There's nobody like that, dude. I would defend it to death. Let's talk about NBA dynasties really quickly. This has been another argument that's come out of this. I feel like there's been three ever. And then after that, it depends on your definition of what counts as a dynasty. But to me, it's Russell Celtics, 11 titles, 13 years. Russell won 70.7% .7 of his games. That counts. Magic's Lakers, we mentioned them. Jordan's Bulls, six titles, six finals, eight years. And then after that, it starts to, it can get a little gamey, whatever your definition is, right? Like, do you, Duncan Spurs, do you consider them a dynasty or just an awesome era? Yeah, I saw I, you. You were really strict with it, and I, I'd rather you be strict than loose. You know, as Villanova. I might be too strict. I'm willing to talk yeah. it out. I just, to me, it's like it's a know it when you see it thing. And if we're arguing about it or wondering about it, then maybe you weren't a dynasty. People will do it if you win two out of three. Now, that's um, my thing. It's like yeah. I think, but that's not what this dynasty, is. All this stuff. It's like to me, dynasty is sustained dominance for a prolonged period of time. Right. So, Duncan so how is Spurs, that not Duncan? Duncan to me is. It's Duncan's 18 years, five titles, six finals, and then a couple daggers, right? 04, Fisher shot. 06, they're up three. Manu fouls Dirk, three point play. They lose in overtime. 2012, they're up two nothing. I still don't totally understand what happened. The OKC that series. series? Yeah. That one I still don't is, know what happened. I'm <laughs> still 11 or 10 years later. I don't know what happened. I, I can't explain to you what happened. 2013, the Ray Allen shot. And it's very similar to the Pats, where it's like they ended up, the Pats ended up with six. They could have won eight. They might have could have won three. You know, and the Spurs, like they ended up with five. They probably could have won seven pretty easily. I, I think the over-under, if you look back, is probably six and a half. They were always good. But to me, it's like, is five titles in 18 years? Is that a dynasty or an awesome run? It's almost like we need another word. So if you think Duncan Spurs are a dynasty, that makes this a lot easier. Yeah, but I understand your, like, I, none of us, this seems to be a word all of us have a hard time identifying. It's personal preference. So the Celtics thing's never happening again. So if that's your standard, then cool, nothing's ever a dynasty. Yeah, so maybe modern dynasty. I don't know. Kobe's Lakers. Dynasty two. Kobe's Lakers, five titles, seven finals in 11 years. And it's kind of split up because you have the Shaq part where they win three in a row. They make the finals four out of five years. Then they crater. 05, 06, 07. They win zero playoff series. They miss the playoffs one of those years. Then they have the second run, 08, 09, and 10. Three finals, two rings. And if you group them up, I guess you could call it a Kobe dynasty, but if part of dynasty is sustained dominance, how do you explain a three-year swoon where you weren't dominant at all? How's that a dynasty? So maybe we I, should, maybe we it, should just change it though. Like the Ming dynasty is, I think, just under three hundred years. That's right. There's probably some ebbs and flows. Right. There's you know there's there's probably a couple villages that are like we're sick of this shit, and then there's some overlaps in the timeline. So maybe you should do this. 
just have it be the individual's dynasty because it's not the Lakers dynasty when all the pieces change out and it's one person that's the same. It's like a Kobe, Kobe dynasty. dynasty. Right. Yeah. This is the Steph dynasty. I think we had a LeBron dynasty. I think the Duncan dynasty exists. So the Celtics version of it, like how different is the magic Lakers dynasty when it's when it's what? It's 81? It's magic only. Yeah, it's yeah. 80 to 80 to... Yeah, you're right. Well, I have, ironically, the way I wrote it out, each one was Russell Celtics, Magic's Lakers, Jordan's Bulls, going down. Birds. So here's where it gets. So Curry's Warriors, four titles, six finals in eight years. Really should have won in 2019. Um, half decade of like true dynasty dominance. But they also missed the playoffs in year six and year seven. You know, so if you're just talking about sustained dominance, then all of a sudden they, it's hard to qualify when in 25% of the years of the dynasty, you didn't make the playoffs. Birds, Celtics. Okay, but was there one specific reason? Yes, the first year Steph didn't play. Steph got hurt. Second right. year, you know, Steph did play. And so did Draymond. Clay didn't play, but, you know, they weren't even one of the best eight teams. Bird Celtics, eight-year run from 1980 to 88. Um, Three titles, five finals. As we said before, Bird won 71.5% of his games. They made eight of nine conference finals from 80 to 88. I, I'm i the biggest Bird homer there is. I never considered that like a dynasty. So if I guess my point is there's the three, and then I think there's, there's another five if you're going to get loose with the word dynasty. Because then we didn't talk about Mike and Lakers, which pre-Russell, barely any black guys in the league at that point. And, you know, they won five titles. I, I, I don't even know where to put that. But I think those were the eight. Those were the eight runs. And if we want to get a little loose with Dynasty, that's fine. Did you think that Jeter Yankees 96 to 01, would you consider that a Dynasty? Yeah, because they were horrifying and they were awesome. So and, I, I agree with yeah. that. So that would be the case for the Warriors. I'm willing to... Admit I might have over I might have underthought this one. But to me, it's just like Russell Celtics, Magic's Lakers, Georgians, Bulls are just levitating above any other version of this. Yeah, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. But I, I think if you're holding it to the standard of what the Celtics are and what the Bulls are, and the Bulls argument, I just I always hate when it's like, well, it'd be eight in a row. It wouldn't be eight in a row. Yeah, that, that would have lost to do, one of them. All you have to do is watch all the footage of them in the last of the three peats, so the sixth one, where they're a mentally they're just mentally washed. And I don't know how they would have been if they'd still had five in a row prior to the, you know what I mean? Like I also just they don't had think, no they had no size in ninety five. We talked about this when we were doing our rewatches. They just didn't have didn't have rebounding and paint protection. I don't think that team would have beaten anybody even if Jordan had played. And yet, look, we're still putting it in there, so it doesn't even matter. So there's no point even being critical of it. I, I don't, I'm, I, I think we're, we're way too loose with it. And that's why I always make that joke after like anybody winning, you know, where I'll be like, hey, is this maybe the first step in the dynasty? Because like dumb stuff right. will happen, right? Like t a team wins two out of four. And you're like, eh? I'm like, why, why would we be in a rush to like, could we talk about, could it have this kind of run? But almost nobody does. And when you also point out like, the Pats could probably have a couple more. They could have a couple less. Alabama, if they had better kickers, could definitely have a couple more. But there's some yeah. weird shit that's happening there, too, where they could probably have a couple less. Everybody seems to kind of land on the number that makes sense for them, whether it's Magic having more or less than the nine finals appearance that he has in there and all that stuff. Steph, you could take 15 away from him. You could say without the Draymond, give him 16 back. You could say without the Durant thing, you know, it's five in a row, like all of the. So Steph kind of lands on like 
four and two feels right for him. I agree. So maybe it's tier one and tier two dynasties. It could be a tier one <laughs> dynasty or a tier two. So a Leo DiCaprio <laughs> or Matt Damon NBA yeah. champ. I, I think I might be too hardcore with dynasties. I'd maybe rather you be. No, but it's kind of like the Hall of Fame thing. Like, I mean, yeah. we, knew, we knew this would happen, but when we started doing Hall of Fame predictions for guys going into the NBA Finals and you brought up Wiggins and I lost my shit. Yeah, now and, Wiggins is going to make it. Put, put him in. <laughs> Second best player in the Finals team, 20,000 points. You don't Vegas actually think that, now. do you? I think he has a decent chance, though. This Okay, now, okay. so I would Everyone rather... Everyone gets in. Everybody gets in. You're right. Everybody gets in. I mean, shit. I was at game three and Twan, Antoine Walker was was courtside. And then I read an article about him pontificating on whether or not his jersey be retired one day. Oh and I was God. like, yeah. I mean, come on, it's the Celtics. Like we love the Antoine, but no. But give me a break. Yeah. Um, let's take uh one more break and I want to just talk about what the Warriors might do this year, and then we'll talk draft. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is already stressful enough to deal with airports, delayed flights, bad weather. You want your actual where you're staying experience to be perfect, to be lights out. You don't want to have to worry about anything. When you book a vacation rental, you want to know exactly what you're paying ahead of time. The stress of getting hit with unexpected cleaning fees after your stay, that can immediately cancel out all the great time you just spent unwinding. Thankfully, when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Verbo, you earn 2% cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Verbo app. This episode is brought to you by Peloton Spring the best time of the year to dial your fitness routine up a notch. You know it's going to happen. It's going to get warm. You're going to start wearing shorts. You're going to start wearing bathing suits. You're just You're not going to be able to cover up behind those big coats anymore. Also, it's nice outside. Get outside. Do stuff. Or if you don't have time to get outside, I got Peloton for you. Whether you have five or 60 minutes, Peloton's workouts were made to challenge you. Classes like boot camps, Full body strength, boxing, marathon training are created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in and you won't feel bad about not being outside. Peloton's expert coaches, challenging classes, and nonstop vibes will keep you coming back for more. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. The Warriors numbers for next year, salary-wise, are really incredible. They got Curry at 48. Clay at 40.6, Dre at 25.8, and Wiggs at 33.6. He's Wiggs now? Wiggs. That's what they call him. They all call him Wiggs and the Warriors. Uh, $148 million. I didn't know know you were calling him that. I'm just going Wiggs. Say that again. I interrupted. $148 million on the books next year for their top four. For four guys. Then they have... Wiseman, Kaminga, Poole, and Moody are on the books for 22.8. So I'm at over 170 million right now with eight guys. I haven't even filled out any of the rest of the roster yet. I have Looney as a free agent. I have Peyton as a free agent. And I have Porter as a free agent. If we're ranking who's most important, I'm starting with Peyton. I thought Peyton was absolutely changed the series. 
they were the best when he was out there. You can see now why they were so upset after he got hurt in that Memphis series and why they were like, if he doesn't come back, we can't win the title. The stuff that he does, his ability to play with those guys, the defense that he brings, um, I just don't see how they lose him. So I, I think he 100% stays. Maybe it's $8 million a year, $10 million a year, I don't know. And then Looney's a tough one. Can, can you hope that Wiseman replaces the Looney minutes or do you feel like you have to bring him back? We see this over and over again with big guys coming into free agency, coming off title teams. They always make money. They always make more money than you think. It's like, I thought he was going to make $5 million. He's going to make 30 for three? Kevon Looney? That's the number, but that's what will happen. So let's say they try to keep both. I think that's between 18 and 20 million a year combined for those two guys, which puts them over 190. And I still haven't figured out the roster. Porter seems like the one they'll let go because Moody can play the Porter minutes. But uh, what do you think happens? I'd argue Looney's more important than Peyton is because they don't have any other size and they're still waiting on Wiseman. Now, from what I've heard about the Wiseman part of this is that it's not about him. Like, don't get confused that this is a young kid that doesn't really maybe have it. He's he's wanted to play. He actually doesn't feel bad. It's been more about just not them wanting to put him in a position where they feel like they're rushing him back. Because for whatever reason, I guess the knee continued to swell. But it was not on him and him not wanting to play basketball. They were super careful basically preventing him because they were looking out for him. Uh, you know, it's funny. We were talking about the Celtics and some of the offseason stuff. I still thought it was a huge mistake by Golden State to, with the Wiseman uncertainty, not add some other big at some point. And they didn't, it seemed like they didn't want to do it because they didn't want to give Kerr the option of then not playing Wiseman once Wiseman got clear because they kept thinking it was going to be part of this. It was going to be fine. So I think it's a mistake and it's a mistake that was not fatal because they still won a title. Looney, you know, he played every single game this year, which is not what you would have thought about somebody who apparently had this growth spurt that messed up his hips. And that's why somebody that was pretty heralded when he was younger, you know, coming into it, you know, he played, what, 20 games two years ago? And is even though I think their lack of bigs and the Wiseman uncertainty makes him really important, it's probably going to go to a number where I'd go, hey, centers, you just can't spend that much money on them, especially when they have their resources elsewhere on the wing. So let's let's allow ourselves some flexibility somewhere else, maybe taking a step back and having more uncertainty, even though I think he's more important than Gary Payton is. He played 104 out of 104 games. Unbelievable. In 2019, he played 80. And yeah, he played the whole season. So he's had a couple injuries, but he has also shown that he could be durable. Great teammate. Knows how to play with those guys. And if you're the Warriors, you're thinking at this point, the biggest advantage you have is the continuity. He's only and 26, too. Like, he looks old. So maybe he's through it all. Go ahead. If you don't care about money, you're bringing him back. But at some point, there has to be some number where you actually have to start caring about money because that this team might cost $400 million next year. I think if they bring him back, that tells me they don't believe in Wiseman at all, that they don't believe that it's going to happen with him. Because if you're going to pay Wiseman $9 million, 9.6, and 12.1 the year after, and then you're going to pay Looney that, I, I just feel like it's, so Wiseman's not going to play. You still have Draymond. You're better off when you're younger with wings, but you also need a little size for certain matchups. Who knows? Um, and then they they have the mid-level too. And, you know, they the other piece with them is they are that destination where somebody would be like, yeah, fuck it. I'll do the one year for $2 million deal and play 15 minutes a game and try to rehabilitate whatever I'm doing. Or like, could that be like a Joe Ingles team? Could that be 
I don't know, Ricky Rubio, like pick, pick anybody who's at the advanced stage of their career, Dragic. So I'm sure there's one or two more people coming too. They're going to be really, really good again. And the West is going to be better. But to me, the, the two things are, can they get eight more months out of Clay and eight more months out of Draymond at the level that they finish the finals in with the advanced age and the miles on Clay and then Draymond, who knows? Because Draymond looked like he was washed up after game three. You know, uh, I, I think the the likely thing here will be patience. You know, they they still have Steph under contract for four years. They've got Clay, who I think will look better next year. And I also think that the positive, even though he missed a million shots, I thought he was so good defensively. Or maybe it was Boston's wings are predictable, which we by the way, you, on at the top of the congratulations, podcast. you won that one by the way, because we argued about that after game one or game two, and you were like, I just believe in Clay. I believe in the pedigree. You were right, and. I thought Clay said something interesting after the game when he was talking about pe- people don't realize like we've been there. We know what it takes. We get it. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Like, um, even if it's a slightly diminished version of whoever, it's still somebody who understands the moment when to go for the kill. That was what I saw in game five and really in game six was those guys on that team knew, ooh, we have them. We, they're on the ropes now. We can kill them right now. That's why Steph pointed to his finger for the ring. He knew, and they knew in the third quarter that game was over. Anyway, I interrupted you. No, but I didn't really think, I didn't understand you in that argument at all. I thought you were crazy. Sorry. I just was like, I, I just can't thought he was athletically be, diminished. Yeah, but out of the rotation, Clay Thompson diminished. We didn't, got, we didn't say that. I was saying I thought Kerr was going to have to make a decision to bench one of these guys Late. in a key game. And by the way, it turned out it was Draymond and not Clay. Draymond was the one that he sat in a really crucial part of uh, the fourth quarter of game four. So I think what'll happen, um, you know, we could talk about Kaminga, Wiseman, Moody, you know, another pick and all that kind of stuff, which is a lot of, well, you know, Myers even had mentioned, everybody wanted us to trade for this guy. But if you're the Warriors, as much as you look at the Wiggins part of this as some success, because there is a Warriors effect, your life is going to be easier with Steph Curry. Your life is going to be easier. Draymond is going to make plays. As Clay gets better as a shooter. I mean, it's two guys you feel like you're constantly fighting over screens with, so your life becomes easier. Cuts, just be smart, be aware. And I don't know that Wiggins from day one was this. And just as an aside on the Wiggins thing, you can't have a 600 credit score for a decade, and then when it gets to 770, start telling everybody to, to like bow down. All right? And I'm not saying that's what Wiggins has done at all, but there's been this Wiggins push of like, hey, you know, maybe we got this wrong. No, he didn't. You're the number one pick. You were super underwhelming. And at the baseline, forget what I had to say. When I did the draft confidential for you at Grantland, all the people that I talked to in the front office were like, hey, at worst, you're getting 15 points a game and like all team, all first team defense, because that's what kind of tools he has. That's the kind of foundation he has. And he wasn't any of those things. I mean, hell, Doris Burke even let him have it during a game. And that's saying something because she's very positive. And it was like a weird deal where all of a sudden she was just laying into him, which meant the staff was probably tipping her off that this guy's incredibly disappointing. So I don't think that the Warriors should then call up Anthony Bennett and think it's just all going to work out all of a sudden. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm very, it, the Wiggins coverage to me is very odd in that all of the stuff that was on his resume prior to this was very real, but your life becomes easier. And credit to him, he played great. Some of those step backs, like you expected it to go in all the time. And defensively, he finally got to the level that you thought he should be able to reach with his physical talents. But I don't know how it just washes away what's generally pretty disappointing seasons in there, despite the raw numbers of a guy who felt like he never really got it. So that part has kind of driven me crazy. Well, how long have more. 
How long have we been doing podcasts together? Like probably like four plus years at this point. Wiggins was always our go-to example for, oh, I forgot you were in the game. We called it like the Wiggins. Oh, you're out there? I did. Have you been out there the whole time? We always, Wiggins was our go-to. And he, you know, he transformed. And there's a pedigree piece to it, which we've talked about on this pod and other episodes that I think matters. I think there was a production piece with him. It wasn't like he was averaging six points a game on Minnesota. He was always, he was durable from a minute standpoint. And he was always able to get numbers. But there was just something about him that left you really cold when you watched him, especially in person. And he fixed it. Last he year fixed when it. they had the awesome. The play, you know what I mean? Right. Like, the playing games last year. Remember, he took like what, six of the worst shots ever when Steph should have had the ball. And it was like Wiggins was like, I got this guy's. He figured three, out like I actually that, don't have this unless it's a perfect spot for me. That three you took against Memphis. You were like, okay, so now you're confident? Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, wait. So he deserves a ton of credit, but I we've we've gotten to a habit of feeling like somebody improving erases all the other stuff. And yeah. I don't know that that's always applicable in this case. So if I'm going I, to stay, By the way, I wouldn't extend him. I would let no. put him in a contract here, <laughs> let him try to earn it. And if somebody wants to come in over the top and offer more than $25 million a year to pull him out of the Warriors infrastructure and just hope this continues, I, don't, I just don't think people are going to do that. I don't see it. So then you could He's say... He's worth more to the Warriors than he would be to another team. I agree. I agree. I think there's a real Steph part of this. Remember when it was with Brad Stevens? You'd be like, you don't want a guy after Brad Stevens leaves. Or or you don't want a guy after he leaves Brad Stevens, better said. But I think the Steph one's right. a little more real than the Brad Stevens one is. So then you've got the younger players. Uh, I'll, I'll use an example here. When Paul George was available, when he wanted out of Indiana, the Pacers knew they had to move him. They called everybody, okay? They called everybody. And they were offering Paul George for, at times, what were, we'd all agree, lesser players. But I talked to one team, not Golden State, that turned down a trade offer, and they were very clear to me. They were like, why would we trade our solution for your problem? Right? Like, why would we do that? And we know Paul George is going to want to be here either. So when you think of like who the best Warriors would be, who's that next guy, like people kept wanting to put Bradley Beal there. Bradley Beal, I think, wants his $250 million and then he'll ask for a trade in a year. That's probably what he's going to do. All right. Uh, when I think about like Melo would probably be a terrible Warrior. And I actually like Melo, but he'd be a terrible Warrior. Uh, if Paul George at his prime, as good as he is, were in that mix, would he figure it out? Or would he ball stop? And then it's like, wait, you can't really do it, which is what's so amazing about Durant as much as everybody hated it, which I get. He still could adapt his play style to be involved with what these guys were. But then he was also this cheat code when the possession went wrong. It's like, hey, just hit a jumper over the top of everybody, um, which opens up a lot of different things. So whoever the next mad star is, the Warriors may be positioned if Kaminga improves, if Wiseman gives you decent minutes, if Moody looks like he's, you know, anything. And I'm not saying I know one way or the other at this point. Maybe the pool part, maybe the Wiggins contract before next deadline, going, hey, we're not resigning him anyway. We're giving Pool his money. They could be positioned for it, but it has to be somebody like Wiggins who defers and accepts, or a guy that wants to play this way. Um, and I don't know that every guy does want to play that way. And I think they're smart enough to know who is really talented, but also who would actually fit. Because I think there have been times in the past where they probably the Warriors could have made a move. They go, but this is probably c- counter to what we do as an offense. The two moves for them if they wanted to improve a level is the Clay contract with some assets to go even get a bigger star, which I just don't think they would mess with the Clay thing. I think 
Do you think it's too emotional? Yeah, I think the Curry, Clay, Draymond, Kerr, those foursome, I just feel like we're building around these four people. And that's how they go. And then the the other way would be, can we get an awesome bigger guy, rebounder, rim protector, defend? Like, could we take Wiseman? Could we take all these other pieces and just go up a level with somebody? And then there's the Draymond piece. If, If Draymond starts getting loud this summer about, I want to be taken care of. I'm going to, you know, this is my last year. I want to finish my career at the Warriors, but they're going to have to pay for it. You know, what's he worth when his stats went backwards this year, you know, and, and he's going to be 33 next season. And if he wants like 30, 40 million a year, I, that would be the one where I think they, they're going to have to do some soul searching on. Cause I, I thought the stuff he did in, in, the end of game four and then game five, game six was old school Draymond. I thought he was awesome in game six. He was yeah, me too. fucking hit uh, every shot. He was pushing the pace. How about he the was, shot clock jumper? I mean, give oh me a my God. That's when you're just like, all right, let's, let's, he, let's get the car. He foiled like four two-on-ones and three-on-ones. I thought he just knew, he had just figured out the Celtics completely. Everything they were doing, he was in the right spots. And uh, it was impressive. All right, uh, NBA draft. So we're going to be talking about this all week. You have a couple podcasts. We're doing a draft night pod. You're going to have a pod on Friday. So there's a lot of meat on this bone. We don't need to cover it all right now. Just two quick ones. First one is, uh, we we, we were on a text thread yesterday about this. It seems like OKC, like if we're just like, where do the guys fit perfectly? Check going to OKC, Paolo going to Houston and Jabari going to Orlando are the three. That actually makes sense. I'm just not sure that should be the order. I personally think Chet has the most value because of the ceiling. But then the smarter draft people are all kind of starting to point at Paolo as like, I like that guy the most, including you, I think. So why can't Orlando just trade down, flip with OKC, and then trade down again and and land at number three and take Jabari anyway and try to pick up other assets? Because it seems like he would have the most value to them. But we that stuff like that never happens. But so that's one piece. Then the other side, if you're OKC, you have all these picks. You have 30 first rounders or whatever the fuck it is. If you like Chet, why not just trade up and get him? KOC, he said this on pods, feels like they care so much about the French guy next year that OKC is going to try to maneuver this. So they're taking to end up with picks that won't necessarily help them this season so they can still be in that loop for the French guy next year. I don't know what to believe. What have you heard? Um... The French guy uh, is Victor's that special. Victor. Yeah, Vic. Big Vic, what guys like calling him. Um, the YouTube things almost look like they're deep faked. Like somebody took Giannis footage and just deep faked some different version of him and just put him in French basketball stuff. And it, it doesn't look real. I got to be honest. Like, I've never seen anything like it. No, he... It's Wembayama, which I kind of screw up half the time anyway um the way when i watch him run around it reminds me of a creating a video game guy like if you had a six eight guy who was awesome and he was the best guy in the video game and then your little brother fucked with it and made him seven three that's what my so, son did with jj mccutcheon in nba 2k he created this guy jj mccutcheon who's basically victor wambayana um i I went back and watched the under 19 final US France, right? Because it was a good Jaden Ivy game. Um, it was a Chet thing. So, uh, anyone saying, hey, the Thunder are the team that want this guy next year? <laughs> so they're already getting ahead of it. 
I'm pretty sure everybody else who's bad would also like. And by the way, like if you're a bad team and you have Chet and or or you have Paolo, like how many games are you actually winning? Be like, oh shit, we took Paolo. We won 27 this year. If we had taken Chet, we would have taken 23 because because Chet's you know more raw to this point. It sounds though like the headline here is that you're now a Chet guy. Is that what I'm hearing? I'll flip again right now. I I, I flipped and. I have Chet as the number one guy, but I might flip again before Thursday. I I'm, I haven't done all my homework yet. The Celtics really screwed me up, but I've been watching a lot of stuff and really trying to think about what I just watched in the in the playoffs and in the finals and who would fit in where. The Jabari two point stats, which a lot of people have talked about, are disturbing, and I don't know how much of it we we don't need to rehash like the guards and all that stuff, but it does worry me that. You know, it's, if it's layups or threes, then that's it. Should that be the number one pick in the draft? Chet, I at least, I, I called him Weird Body Horford. Like, I at least know he can be Weird Body Horford. I know he can get to 16, 17 a game and 12, 13 rebounds and blocks, and he's fun to play with. I can't get past how weird his body is, but I'm the more I watch him, I'm just getting used to it. Is that fair? It's, yeah. You just haven't seen yeah. it. It's just so strange. And there's no one to compare him to. And this is a big Jonathan Sharks point is like, just because there's nobody to compare him to doesn't mean that's a bad thing. This race to always comp somebody to somebody. Chet's just different looking. So if you had to sum up each guy with one sentence, if, and by the way, it sounds like you are digging in because I've changed my mind. Going back to November, I've changed my mind multiple times. And that's what's so fun about this and why I like all three guys a lot. Because I've had moments yeah. where I like all three of them better than the other two guys. Um, but yeah, I've kind of come back to Paolo because I don't understand why. Because he's better than everybody. He's the best player of the three right now. That's not the job. That's not what you're drafting. Who's the best right now? You're drafting who you think the best in five years could be. And that's why Chet you know, is in the conversation here. Maybe he should go number one. So uh, let's, let's put Paolo into that Celtic series. What we think Paolo could be. In the Tatum spot, is he creating his own shot against that Warriors team? Is he finishing? Is he reliable? If the Warriors are shifting the defense around him, they're running pick and rolls with him, what does that look like? Could he be the best scorer on a title team? Well, if you're asking me tomorrow to go play in the NBA Finals... No, uh, I'm saying no. I'm saying ceiling, ceiling Palo. Palo seven years from now. From what, yeah, from the, that's what, what you've that's, seen. Yeah, that's what I think of him. Because I, I think I've seen it I can't get past the Texas Tech game where they needed they needed somebody and Roach ended up making all these impossible shots at the end because they couldn't get the ball to Paolo because I just thought Duke did a bad job of getting him free to get the ball. But I don't know, prior to the last two or three minutes, there was a stretch where it was just Paolo high pick and roll, which is what this game always defaults to. And he could do those things. And I think Paolo deserves a ton of credit um, where some people see it as a negative where it's like, okay, I need to go do mine. And I like I was talking with a scout the other day that I thought was making really good points. It was like he is a big that is enamored with the idea of being a smaller player, which can get you into trouble sometimes. But that Duke team had so many guys that wanted the basketball that were that were ball first offensive creators. Whether it was AJ getting buried in the corner, I've been over this a million times. Akeels, Wendell Moore, um, and Roach, who's a five star kid as well, and then Paolo still kind of found a way to fit in with all of them. But then when I start talking about how you fit in with your teammates. Gonzaga gave Chet the fourth amount of plays. There's three other guys that got really more plays run for him all season long. 
And if I had to sum up Chet with one sentence in the scouting report, I'd say, does everything right. He doesn't make mistakes. It's unbelievable how, how smart Chet is. And maybe that speaks to his age because Chet's actually a year older than Jabari. And I think he's got six months on Paolo. So Chet's actually the oldest uh, of these dudes. He turned 20 last month. But he, he, did, he did the right thing all the time because Mark Few wasn't just going to let Chet. Like if Chet played it, just trying to think of like a good example. If Chet played it like, well, no, Baylor runs a ton of shit. Um, they kind of think of like USC OJ Mayo, mm. where it's like, whatever, man, like you've actually picked us. We couldn't believe it. Like that's how the OJ Mayo to SC story, which is Here's really weird. Yeah. Um, we would have seen way more of Chet. So he was somewhat muted by his own system. But in him being muted, you also realize like this guy knows exactly what to do and how to play off the ball, was cool with it the entire time. And when he did get the ball, like he did the right thing all the time. So if you're telling me you like Chet better than the other guys, end with the ceiling part of it. This job is star hunting, all right? It's star hunting. And if you think Chet gives you the best chance of taking a, being a star of the three, then I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. It's just that I think it's it's close enough, and I still really like Paolo, and I think Paolo, the best version of him, is a guy that's initiating your offense in a playoff game. So I guess why I'm leaning toward Chet, I don't feel like any of these guys can be the franchise best player on a title team. I think Paolo could be the best scorer on a title team, but I don't ne- think he'll necessarily be the best player. Jabari, same thing. So if if I'm basically taking somebody who can be the second best player on a title team or an important piece of a title team, I just like how Chet fits in with every type of player and team, right? Like he would have played, I think, 25 to 30 minutes on either of the teams in the finals, which is notable, you know, not, not him right now. I'm saying like two, three years from now, um, I'm going to do more homework. So that's one thing. Chet Palo Jabari, one of the more fun draft things. And I feel like we all have to go on the record at the end, not just me and you, but just everybody like. This is a good one. This is a good one for the resume. Like when we look back seven years ago, who got this right? Tatum, Lonzo, yeah. and and Fultz was another one, right? This will just be a fun. All right, who did you have going back? Like, I'm dining on the Luca thing for the next twenty years. Like we we're just adamant. Like this is absolutely insane that he's not going to be the first pick. So Sacramento is the other piece I've become fascinated by with this, where. It really seems like Ivy, and who knows what the mocks, but just in general, it just seems like Ivy has ascended to top guy after the top three. And that would mean Sacramento would basically, I mean, he's a point guard, shooting guard hybrid, I guess, but basically be they taking a point guard four years in a row, which would just be iconic. This has been out there a little bit, but why wouldn't New Orleans try to move up from eight to four with all the stuff they have? Isn't Ivy kind of like the perfect on paper backcourt person to add to what they have and kind of develop and evolve as it goes with the team that they have in place? Or am I crazy? I mean, the only thing I think you would say, like, oh, is that too much? You know, how do you play Ingram, Zion, CJ and all these guys and then add Ivy to it? Who's going to want the ball in his hands? I would I would rather have that problem than have too few guys where in a playoff series you're like you know what you got like two guys out there we never need to guard and that's where i think teams it just stops for them so it would be a lot you know i kind of hate the whole like oh there's only one ball i don't i don't feel that way like i'd rather have 
That's why I always love that Toronto 19 team. It's like, you know, when you really break this down, but it's also a group that kind of knew how they fit in with each other when yeah. they needed it. It wasn't like Van Vliet was going to go the whole time or Siak was going to go the whole time. He still knew it kind of went through Kawhi. And that's why, like, when I had David Griffin on two weeks ago and he was talking up Brandon Ingram and then he was saying, like, about Zion, he goes, he's an elite post guy. And then when we went point Zion, we realized he was an elite creator and all that kind of stuff. And I almost interrupted. I was like, I don't think Brandon Ingram loved point Zion. <laughs> but he was on a roll and it was very positive. Well, would Ivy and, like Point Zion? No, I don't is think that, anybody would. Isn't Ivy? I think Point but Zion is not like a traditional point guard. Well, I think Point Zion was like, yeah, we kind of suck. So just go ahead and do your thing and and we'll figure it out. I don't think Point Zion, it should be an option. It should be something you have. I don't think it should be the foundation of your offense. So is it possible that Ingram still being young, Zion figuring out who he is? I think CJ understands the role because he played with one of those ball dominant guards going for his entire career with Dame. And that's why, you know, CJ, I like guys that are okay fitting in with other people. It's actually what I like about Kyle Lowry. It's, it's what I loved about Van Vliet. Not every guard can do it. I don't, Jaden did play. I don't want to do Purdue's offensive resume all over again like we did at the other pod, but you think Jaden, it wasn't like he was, given the keys to Purdue like it was some high school right, kid. Right, they had the that, big guys. Yeah, right. I get they, it. There were other people involved with that. I almost wish they had, they'd given them the keys a little bit more often. I well, it's, but, a fascinating, it's a fascinating idea because scoring-wise, those four guys, you'd be like, holy shit. But I don't know if it's going to work. Yeah, the reason I mentioned it is I was trying to figure out Sacramento should clearly trade down. They should trade they should down into Ivy. the 8 to 12. You do. So then yeah. what do you do with Fox? Nah, I just What do you do with You don't care. I mean, we're talking about adding Ivy to Zion, Ingram, and CJ. And then we're so worried about De'Aaron Fox. And then, you know, when I had Vecini on, he was like, Davion Mitchell really closed the season strong. He may have. Maybe it's going to be awesome. Davion was a lot of fun to watch in college. But you're saying I that's just, not the reason to take to not take Jade and Ivy because Davion Mitchell looked good in the last 10 games of the year. And by the way, whoever you're drafting is going to want the ball at some point. Whether it's Keegan. Like, you're not going to just say, hey, Keegan, go sit in the corner. Yeah. No. You know, and Dyson Daniels is somebody who like some of the best stuff about him is his size and that he's he's a guy that can play on and off. It's it's up to these players to figure out how to fit in with each other. It's just harder when you're a lottery pick and you think you're going to be a 10-time All-Star and a Hall of Famer. You're like, "Well, no. Like I default to just get the fuck out of my way," which is what De'Aaron Fox is right now. Is there a Knicks Kings trade that we could make up where they take the Kings take Ivy at 4 and then there's What do you want from the Knicks besides RJ who well, they're I'm not saying with, with the Knicks would the Knicks think about Fox and what's he worth and the 11th pick and some other stuff could be in play? And then if you're the Kings, you're like, all right, we got Ivy at four. We got wing whoever at 11. And here we go. We're officially doing this the right way. Because uh, I think they were pretty enamored by the Fox Sabonis thing, which is why I think it won't happen. And then the yeah, Kings are the, always kind of delusional. Yeah. They always feel like they're one move away from being a five seed. Yeah, I would, I would the imagine. Joy of the Kings. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, uh, that's why they haven't traded some of the other pieces over the years, which is the weirdest thing about the Halliburton yeah. deal of all of it. Uh, like, you know, Halliburton could play with anybody. We'll figure that out with De'Aaron Fox. But I, I, uh, I'm more and more anti-passing on Ivy. I just okay. am. We'll have a whole week to talk about it. The last thing I just wanted to mention, I'm so fascinated by how many wings there are in this draft and just the value of wings in general. It 
So the, I'm in this AL Keeper Baseball League that we've been in since 2004. Take us through your a, entire draft. Well, we have a minor league draft. Oh, my God. And it's, you know, we you've it's like a 25-round, or 25-pick minor league draft. And you can keep the guys in the system and bring them up. And for years and years, we would always just go through like Baseball America's Top 100 and Keith Law's Top 100. You take the best pitcher, you'd have the second pick in the draft. And then you would get Tommy John surgery and he would bounce around. It would take him five years. Like we had Carlos Radon. We had him for years, right? He never made it. And then we let him go because it's four-year contract. And he went to the White Sox and he's fucking awesome. Now he's, now he's awesome. And it was just late. So we eventually all realized, just take hitters. Hitters are safer. You can plug them in. Like we have guys like Andrew Vaughn on the White Sox. We took him second. Put him in, he'll at least hit like 250. He'll get at bats. It's a safer thing. And I wonder with the NBA with wings, if guys just look at the, if teams just look at these wings and it's like, you know what? Like, like Williams, the Santa Clara kid, who I think has climbed up and I think he's become a darling. And by the way, I love him. I love the YouTube clips. I like the interviews. I'm all in. He's one of my guys. Um, but he climbed into the first round and and people seem to think he should be between 17 and 20, I guess. It's like, should he? Why couldn't he go ninth? How hard is it to find a wing who can like handle the ball? Like what we saw, what we saw with Scotty Barnes last year. So I just look at all these wings and I'm like, you kind of have to nail the wings in the draft. So if those guys can play for you, think about the Neesmith pick with the Celtics. They didn't nail the pick. If he could have played, if he was good, they probably win the title. And then you think of all the wings the Warriors had out there at the same time. They always had three. And it's like wings are 60% of these teams now. So I think this is going to be the year of the wings where it's just going to be the same kind of mindset. We're just like, oh, who's the best wing? I'll take him. What do you think of that theory? I like it. And I also like something else you touched on too, kind of just forcing yourself to ask questions. You'd be like, well, why wouldn't I take... Um, Jalen like Mal- No, like why is, why is Malachi from Ohio State behind so many guys? I fucking love that guy. Okay. And yet I've only seen him in so many spots, right? Like the thing I'm always really good at, cause I have to play catch up cause I don't do it year round. And I, all the respect in the world of guys that do it year round. All right. Cause I just know I'm not going to know. I just don't, I'm not going to do, if it were my year round job, I would put way more work into it than I do. But whenever I look at somebody, I'll be like, wait, this guy's too low. Like Usman Jang now, who was the one of the first breakdowns that I did, I go, there's no way he's going as late as everybody has him. There's right. no fucking way. That was like and one of the first draft opinions you had. It might have been the first for this class. Yeah. And he has a promise. I don't think he's going to be there for where his promise is. Um, unless, you know, agents really start figuring out a way to be like, don't take our guy, which is, you know, clearly happened in the history of this. So anyway, back to the wing thing part of it. I like sitting at home sometimes going, wait, well, why is this guy 10 spots behind this guy? Like, why Why is that the case? Like, yeah. Why? Like why the Memphis is, big. Why is he ahead of Sohan when I know Sohan could play in the series I just watched? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Because like, like, Durin, I can always Durin find is who bigs. you're talking about. Right. Yeah, yeah, I can always find, I can always find bigs. I can always get somebody for 20 minutes but I can't get athletic wings who are fucking competitive. So I look at Sohan, I look at Williams from Santa Clara. 
I think uh, Williams is a little slower than some of the guys, so it scares me a little bit. But he does seem to be the darling, and everybody likes him. And he's so smart, does a bunch of different things, and all that kind of stuff. I was watching the Gonzaga January game last night, and if you're waiting for it to like stand out, I think that's another thing that's almost like chat related. They go, wait, this guy's going to be the number one pick. Are you going to just absolutely take over here for five or ten minutes? Mm. And the funny thing is, like a lot of guys don't really do that. They're going to go really high. Matherin does it. Keegan Murray has done it. Uh, I would say Paolo's done it more than the other two guys. I don't, you know, I don't think that that one's much of a debate. Um, and Duran, who in games, I didn't like him as much as the clips. So then I went back and watched the games after the clips because the clips can totally screw you up too. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes, sometimes the clips look, you're like, oh, wow, this guy's initiating a lot of stuff. And then you watch the games and you go, oh, okay. Like I saw his seven assist clips. <laughs> It looked like right. he was really involved, but he's actually not. And this guy completely floats. Like Kendall Brown was a game guy for Baylor, who's a big time recruit. He's a game guy who I couldn't stand. Clips I liked. And then I went back to games and said, you know, this guy's now too low. Like I remember at first being like, Kendall Brown's way too high. And now he's so low. I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't dislike him this much. And it just always gets back to something that's worth reminding. We are all conditioned by mock drafts, whether we believe it or not. You can be as stubborn, you can be as single-minded, you can be as free thinker as you want to be, whether it's us or the people doing it for real because the owners are looking at them too. The mock drafts, like I like your exercise, or your exercise that I make myself do sometimes where I'll go, okay, why isn't Wesley from Notre Dame ahead of all of these other dudes? Like make the argument for it. Now, I would could do that right now if I wanted to, but I'm not going to bore everybody with it. It's just that the mocks can really fuck you up. Because then you start thinking like, hey, you know, my favorite thing is like, this guy will be 12 or 13. And then he goes nine. And we're like, what the fuck is wrong with them? Right. Well, <laughs> like yeah, it was three or four spots. Clip culture is really, I'm glad you brought that up. Because I was thinking, imagine if we had this for NBA players. And it was like Peyton Pritchard playoffs. And they just showed like game seven in the Milwaukee series and all these moments when Peyton Pritchard was awesome. And you just watched that for six minutes. You're like, oh my God. Well, the clip show. Is this guy I mean, Steve Nash? Synergy shows all the possessions. So you see the good with the bad, but the playmaking part I'm of it. I'm talking about the YouTube stuff. When oh, you the just U- go like the YouTube, it. like five minutes of just the best version of somebody. Hey, if it were YouTube, Stromile Swift be in the Hall of Fame. Okay. Tyus Thomas? Tyus Thomas? Maybe, maybe they would waive the waiting period for those guys. Um, but clips, like who would be the best? Like if there were just clips of Reggie Jackson doing good stuff now, be like, well, how many, how how many rings does this guy have? Neesmith, like some of the D he was playing in Miami. I have, uh, I have my Palo comp for you, by the way. Okay. The player I always wanted Derek Williams to be. Wait, Arizona Derek Williams? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> You like that uh, one? I know. The player well, yes, coming out of yes, college yeah. that I thought Derek Williams was going to be, I thought he was going to be this awesome offensive player, this inside-outside guy who could just launch threes whatever he wants, beat people off the dribble. Didn't really know what position he was, but it didn't matter. And I still don't know what happened. I have a lot of Derek Williams stocks, though. But I think Paolo is like the, we're, we have a second chance to get this right now. How I felt about Derek Williams with Palo. I'm going to double check this, and I know it's true. But he was he was so fierce, too. You know what I mean? He kind of... was he, awesome. He, yeah. He had that shit to him where you were like, this is what I want a guy to look like. 
this is a modern four in where basketball is going. It is Derek Williams at Arizona. This is where the league is going, this type of forward. And then his career just sucked. And I'm, maybe there's some personal shit going on. I don't know. Anyway. Okay, so let me um, let me double check here. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. So <laughs> think about marinate on that. We could talk about it again on Thursday. No, no, but I want to share something with you because I remember doing you know back when I was at ESPN, I was starting to to do those drafts, and I was yeah. So this is this is like I don't know my fifth year at ESPN at that point. So I think they finally started letting me do some of the stuff with it. But when you looked at Williams, he was he was twenty and eight. And his splits were 60% over, uh, excuse me, yeah, 60% overall. He shot 57% from three. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I remember going, well, that's not going to happen. Like, he shot two a game. He made 57%. But it's it's a great thing to look at. It's something to build on. He's 75% from the floor, which, you know, again, all the NBA guys that do it for real will be like, if you give me something over 70% from the free throw line, I, I like my chances, even if your raw shooting numbers suck. And I'll never forget, I don't know who it was with. It was a former player or something. And I was like, well, look, he's not going to shoot 57% from three. And the guy was like, why won't he, though? <laughs> you're like, you know what? <laughs> I can't really argue. I, I can't yeah, tell you you're wrong, can I? Mm-hmm. Why won't he, though, was, was the debate that I got thrown my way for a college kid that in one season, two attempts per game, shot 57%. And but it's that's a short sample thought. size, too. It's and like that's 30, you, 35 games. He's taking probably yeah. 75 threes, whatever it is. Um, all right. We're going to cover the draft a lot this week, all culminating with the Thursday night pod. Um, this what are podcast, we doing for it? Can I, I ask? Know, we we got to figure it out. I, we'll do a multi-parter. I think that one worked the best, but we'll try to maybe do something. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll figure out something good. Okay, real quick. Have you watched the offer yet on Paramount? I'm like five behind. Is Matthew Good's performance above oh, He's Evans. amazing. That was the only is reason that, I kept watching. Is it, give me an NBA comp. Oh my God. Is it Glenn Rice to the Lakers? <laughs> Where you were like, I just remember being back then and be like, what did Glenn Rice do last night? Like, oh my God. Remember that Glenn Rice, you need to do a full chapter when you do a new paperback edition. Um, which I know you've already done, whatever I your thought, next one is. I don't know why Glenn Rice didn't go down as one of the best 70 guys of all time. There was a two-year stretch there where it was like that was everything you wanted from a six-foot-seven guy with shooting range, right? Uh, it felt like Glenn Rice was just breaking his own records every single night. Yeah. And so, every, But you weren't expecting it, right? Because you were like, hey, he's a really good player, and then he's kind of k- k- kicked he around. incredible. Then he, then he had that stretch where it just felt like, is he score 40 again last night? And you're yeah. like, I'm so enamored. I just want to see more Glenn Rice stuff. Give me more Glenn Rice. That's how I feel about this Bob Evans character. It's Matthew Good, right? Yeah, he's great. G O O D E. I just want to yeah. make sure. Sometimes he was on. Um, he was on that show I never watched with uh, Felicity. Is it Cake? The Americans. I think he oh. was on from the Americans. Yeah. He was also in the Imitation Game, right? Yep. We have to go because it's Father's Day, and my wife's going to get mad at me soon. I don't want to be. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to take shit on Father's Day. It's my day. Um, Rusillo, a couple pods this week. All coming any Thursday night. Good to see you. Podcast was produced by Kyle Creighton, as always. Thanks to Dylan Berkey, Steve Cerruti as well. And I look forward to the next time I see you. I've changed my mind on number pick again. Good to see you. <laughs>